Well, on behalf of the teachers, I'd also like to welcome you all this evening. My name is Joseph Goldstein, Carol Wilson, Rodney Smith, and Melanie Vashka, who is a teacher trainee and will be helping us during the course, uh, sitting in on some of the interviews and also uh, doing some sign-up uh, interviews. As most of you know, over the past 30 years, many different Buddhist traditions have flourished here in the West. And there are so many different methods. There's, is the mic uh, some feedback or something? It's working okay? okay? There are so many different traditions, so many different methods, so many different metaphysics that are being taught. Sometimes it gets confusing, especially when teachings in some of the different traditions are contradictory. So just as an example of this, in some of the traditions of Buddhism, freedom is seen as pure awareness, that the very nature of freedom is awareness. In other Buddhist traditions, Freedom transcends awareness. Freedom is beyond awareness. Well, perhaps it takes a philosophical mind to be bothered by this, but when I came across these different teachings, it really created a kind of spiritual crisis. It's like, who's right? You know, as I would hear the different teachings from very great masters in these different traditions, and they were saying quite different things, it was confusing. So I struggled with this for quite a while. And then it was actually in a moment, it all came together in what for me was a very important realization. And that is, instead of hearing the teachings as statements of some ultimate truth. I began to understand all the teachings as skillful means for liberating the heart. Now, if we hear teachings as statements of ultimate truth, and one tradition says one thing, another tradition says another, there is inevitable conflict. But if we understand all the teachings simply as a skillful means for freeing our hearts, freeing our minds, then we can learn from them all. And there's only one very pragmatic question to ask. Does it work? Does it help to free our minds from greed, from hatred, from ignorance? Concepts are always limited. Whenever we use words to describe experience, the words are always limited. And so, in our practice, we need to find ways to understand the words to go beyond them. To hear the words as a pointing to something which is beyond concept. And as most of you know, you're 
probably pretty experienced in meditation. Meditation is precisely this process. It's a process of investigation. It's a systematic way, systematic methodology for understanding our bodies, for understanding the thought process, for understanding our emotions, from understanding the nature of consciousness itself. It's really a way of paying very careful attention to our own inner processes. Now, to what forces in the mind, in ourselves and in the world, what forces create suffering? And to see what forces in the mind and in the world are the conditions for greater happiness and for peace. So during this retreat, during these next eight days or so, we'll be exploring different ways of relaxing the heart, different ways of touching that place, that place of freedom within ourselves. And we're going to begin by practicing some very explicit instructions that the Buddha gave in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse he gave on the foundations of mindfulness, and particularly in the section, Mindfulness of Breathing. Now, I've been practicing Vipassana, or inside meditation, uh, for about 40 years, more than 40 years. And I've read this sutta, the Mindfulness Sutta, countless times. But there are certain steps that the Buddha described of how to be with the breath that I basically skipped over. I'm not quite sure why, but I just didn't pay much attention to them until a few years ago when I was giving a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. And I was giving the talks line by line, going over it very carefully. Oh, the Buddha said, do this, do this, do this, do this. So I thought to myself, hmm, maybe I should try doing what he said. And lo and behold, it was very helpful. So I'd like to share that with you, so that you don't spend 40 years missing out on something. So we'll begin, especially tomorrow, as, as the foundation you know, for the practice in the rest of the week. We'll go over some of those steps in a little bit of detail. And it may very well reveal a way of balancing the factors of right effort and calm and concentration, perhaps in a new way. With that as the basis, then we'll be exploring the mind and the nature of freedom. What actually is the nature of the free mind from a somewhat different perspective? And this will be in the framework 
of what was described very clearly by a 12th century Korean Zen master whose name was Shunul. And in some way he was one of the founders of Korean Zen. In a book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance, which is a wonderful Dharma book if you haven't seen it yet, he framed his teachings in what he called sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And that frame appealed to me a lot, to actually start with awakening and then to gradually cultivate to actualize that potential of freedom in ourselves. I've always appreciated that framework, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, because it explicitly acknowledges the union of the ultimate and relative level of experience. And it's precisely this union of the ultimate and the relative that brings about a genuine spiritual maturity. Now, on the ultimate level, we grow in our understanding that everything is essentially empty, meaning empty of self, that everything is essentially insubstantial, that nothing has any inherent self-existence. This is all what emptiness means in the Buddhist context. In a very pragmatic way, this understanding of emptiness was described by the great Thai master Ajahn Buddhadasa when he said, there's nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. That's kind of nice. <laughs> nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. This is going to be a great week. But simply to say that everything is empty without full realization can lead to some problems. You know, it can lead to a kind of nihilism or a kind of disengagement both with the world and with our own inner processes. Where we kind of up-level things, oh, everything's empty, nothing matters. And that is not true realization. It's like we're using the concept of emptiness in a not very skillful way. On the other hand, it's very possible to get lost on the relative level. You know, where we get lost in an endless struggle with the various defilements that arise in the mind. You know, these defilements are forces that we're very familiar with, of desire and greed and anger and aversion and boredom and fear and envy and jealousy. You know, all the forces in the mind that cause suffering. If we're ensnared in the relative level, then we're in a continual struggle with these deeply habituated patterns And it tends to reinforce or strengthen the sense of self with us, within us. 
When this happens, when we're when we're caught up in the relative, then we're overlooking the possibility of sudden awakening. We're overlooking that potential for freedom in any moment. So this is why the balance or the union or the integration of the relative and ultimate is so important. We want to come to an understanding of what actually is right in front of us, so we're dealing on the relative level, but not forgetting the essential emptiness of it all. This is what we're going to be practicing this week, the union of these two levels of truths. Now there's an exchange (coughs) that I came across in a book between a Chinese Zen master, and I'm not sure I'm going to get the pronunciation right, Zen master Shito, and some seeker of the truth, you know, people like ourselves. And this exchange highlights many of the themes of this retreat. So this seeker came to the Zen master Shito and asked, what am I supposed to do? And she too replied, why are you asking me? And the seeker said, where else can I find what I'm looking for? And she too replied, are you sure you lost it? So we all come to this retreat with some form of that first question. What am I supposed to do? You've all made, <coughs> excuse me, you've all made a fair degree of effort just to be here. You know, it's leaving family, leaving friends, leaving the comforts of home, the difficulty of travel, the money for the retreat. <coughs> so the question, now what should I do? It seems quite reasonable. It seems like a very natural question. You know, as we come together to practice. But Shito wasn't seduced by the question. He turns the question back. You know, why are you asking me? And our response, very likely, would be, of course I'm asking you. Who else should I ask? You're the one who's sitting here. But then she too strikes in that Zen master-like way. How else can I find what I'm looking for? Are you sure you ever lost it? So that really is our koan. During this week we will explore both what it is that we're looking for and whether we have indeed ever lost it or not. And that's the power of the practice. That's the power of awareness. Reveals the answer to these questions. So as a kind of preview of all this, you know how in the movies you get the previews of coming attractions? So as a preview of the liberated mind, There are a few very direct teachings 
that point to the empty, open, aware nature of mind. You know, and these teachings come from different traditions. There was a writer uh, who lived sometime in the last century. He wrote under the name Wei Wu Wei. And I think he was either English or Irish, I'm not sure. He lived in the Far East, he lived in Hong Kong, and had some genuine and deep realization. And he wrote these wonderful books with very pithy descriptions of and pointings to the nature of the free mind. And so one of his one of his very helpful lines, he said, what we're looking for is what is looking. So that would be very helpful to remember. You know, as we get caught in striving for something or other, striving for some experience, what we're looking for is what is looking. From another side, and this is from the Zen master Shinul, He said, the nature of the mind is unstained and is originally whole and complete in itself. The nature of the mind is unstained and originally whole and complete in itself. It's the reminder that it's already here. The free mind is already present And we have to open to it, we have to recognize it. This is from the Tibetan teachings of Mahamudra, where it says the essence of mind is like space, and therefore there is nothing it does not encompass. So what are all of these teachings saying? They're all pointing us back to the nature of our minds. It's already whole and complete in itself. What we're looking for is what is looking. The essence of the mind is like space, therefore there is nothing it does not encompass. And again from Buddhadasa, that great time master, he said, really we should call mind emptiness, but because of awareness we call it mind. There's that very interesting union of emptiness and awareness, which is the nature of our mind. It's not something outside of ourselves. It is the very nature. So these are just a few of the aspects that we will be exploring over these next days. As we begin the retreat, there are some very simple and basic guidelines and suggestions that will help you in the transition from the busyness of your life and the busyness of the world as we settle into the silent space of a retreat. You know, a space of silence, a space of stillness, where there are not many diversions and there are not many distractions. As you know, those of you who have been on retreat before, 
in this space of silence, there's a tremendous immediacy of experience. It's as if we come face to face with ourselves. And in some respect, silence is one of the most beautiful aspects of our time here together. You know, for people who have never been on retreat before and they hear, oh, this is going to be a silent retreat, often it's the most scary aspect for people who have not had that experience and they think, oh my God, I'll never be able to be quiet for even a day, much less eight or nine days. And yet, for everyone who has had the experience, the silence is among the most beautiful and healing aspects. It's a time when we can relax. We no longer need to present ourselves to anyone. We can really settle back just into the truth of our being and there's such beauty in that and such peace in that. This is the simplicity and ease of solitude even amongst 90 fellow practitioners. Now, this is the great gift of silence. We're here supporting each other, and yet there's this space of solitude. Now, the great <coughs> poet and philosopher and adept Rumi, he said, which is worth more? A crowd of thousands or your own genuine solitude? Freedom or power over an entire nation? He said, a little while alone will prove more valuable than anything that, that could ever be given you. A little time alone will prove more valuable than anything that could ever be given you. Why? because we come to understand ourselves. So even through the many ups and downs of the retreat, and there will be ups and downs, you know, there'll be times when you feel energized and interested and engaged, and times when you'll be restless and bored and maybe pain in the body. There'll be lots of different experiences happening, but through it all, It's worth remembering and appreciating this great gift that you've given to yourself for this period of time. It's very rare in the world. It really is a very precious time. So the silence, the solitude. The second thing that will help a lot to ease yourself into the retreat space is slowing down. We live in a very fast-paced culture. You know, it's like our lives are in fifth gear. Begin to downshift a little bit. And slowing down doesn't necessarily mean that you're creeping along. Although sometimes creeping along is fine. But it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that. It really means 
to be fully present and fully aware for whatever it is that you're doing as you move about through the day. There's one distinction which if you if you let this be a seed, you know, planting a seed for you for the retreat, it will be very helpful. There's a very big difference in practice between being relaxed and being casual. And people often confuse that. You know, when we talk about relaxing, which is so important, it's relaxing the heart, relaxing the mind, relaxing the body, settling back. Sometimes people interpret that as being casual about their practice. And that's not it at all. We can be very caring, a tremendous amount of caring in our practice with everything we do in a relaxed way where we're not forcing, we're not struggling, we're not striving. We're settled back, we're relaxed and really present for even the small activities. A good feedback mechanism is to pay attention when you feel or have the feeling of rushing. I'm sure you're all aware of what that feels like when we're rushing. Rushing does not have to do with speed. You can be rushing moving quickly. You can be rushing when you're moving slowly. Rushing, that feeling happens when we're ahead of ourselves, when we're anticipating the next move, the next activity, when we're toppling forward. You know, when you're leaving the hall and your mind is already putting your shoes on. Or you're putting your shoes on and the mind is already five steps ahead. That's the rushing quality. That's the casual aspect of the practice. So pay attention to that feeling because it will come. We often fall into that habit. Let it be a feedback. Oh, rushing. Toppling forward, not present. Just stop for a minute. You know, take, a, take a deep breath. And again, recollect yourself in the awareness of whatever you're doing. When we slow down in this way, it's not a holding ourselves back, it's a settling back. We're just settling back into the body in a very simple, relaxed, easy way and paying attention. You know, taking care with what we're doing with small things, putting your shoes on, opening a door, brushing your teeth, standing up, sitting down, whatever it is. There's a famous artist in America. She lived in the desert of the Southwest. Her name was Georgia O'Keeffe. And she did these wonderful paintings, uh, often of flowers. And she wrote, Still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. And there's really a good message there. We want to make friends with ourselves. 
and that takes time, in the sense that we need to pay attention. We need to really look with care, you know, with a certain gentleness of heart and mind. Sometimes people equate slowing down, silence, caring attention. They sometimes equate it with being grim. You know, and this is a great danger for yogis, for meditators. Slowing down, being silent doesn't mean being grim. We can do it with a very light heart, settling back in a very light and relaxed way and a caring way. This is what takes practice. It's not accidental that we call it meditation practice. We're actually practicing these qualities of the heart and mind. You know, it's the qualities of openness, it's the qualities of appreciation, it's the quality of interest. We're really taking an interest in how the body works, in how the mind works, in the nature of thought, in the nature of emotion, in the nature of awareness, in the nature of silence. My first teacher, Munindraji, he once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. And by the end of it, I was wishing for some silence. <laughs> but it was, it was just very interesting to realize you know, the depths that are possible, the depths of understanding. There was a Japanese poet, a woman named Izumi, who really summed up what our meditation practice is about. She wrote, The moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. That's what the meditation is about, to know ourselves completely, no part left out. So I would like to express my appreciation for being here and sharing the Dharma with all of you and with teaching with my three colleagues up here. It's a pleasure, a very deep pleasure. I have never taught at Gaia House before. Mostly I teach in the States. So here we are. As Joseph mentioned, there's a very powerful way that we hold self-awareness during and throughout the retreat that is sort of at the heart of the practice and the technique, yet at the same time, all of us are sitting next to someone in a hall of some 70 people. And if we become too self-focused, too 
limited in our perspective so that we just hold our attention inwardly without seeing the context of our movement and whether there is some uh, abrasion or difficulty between one another as we do move, then the spirit of the retreat, which is based in kindness, which is based in that consideration, will be lost as well. So what I would like to talk to you about very briefly is holding that context of community, holding that context of the rules that help us as a community. And the five precepts we will suggest and ask you to follow for the course of these days together are seemingly um, easy rules, but you'll find that what they do are just, they're just checks on our automatic conditioning. Most of us, when too self-governed, when we're too on automatic pilot, will find us violating one of these presets, precepts very quickly. And what the precepts do is just remind us that we are, in that moment, absent-minded, not present with ourselves, not thinking of the context of ourselves in relationship to the greater community as well. So to take on these precepts is to keep us within the context of one another as well as on the um, direct alignment so that we don't cause a lot of friction and we, at that point, can uh, be assured that we also are not an automatic pilot and just uh, behaving according to our habits um, as well. So what are these five precepts and how to use them on retreat. Some of them on retreat are self-governed, which can be very helpful uh, because, for instance, we are not going to be speaking, so there isn't a great deal that we have to worry about in terms of uh, our language or the harshness of our speech. So the retreat itself holds a context for uh, these precepts, but let me just walk you through them, if I could. Uh, The first is... And listen to how they're framed, because it's very important. They're not a thou shalt not. It's not a statement of morality. It's a statement of alignment. And I undertake the practice, because it is a practice, as is anything, when we're not on automatic pilot. I undertake the practice to refrain from taking life. So when we were sitting in the staff uh, dining hall here, uh, there was a mouse that was about ready to come in the door and uh, I just noticed it uh, it brought up a great deal of memory uh, for me and uh, I was a maintenance person uh, many, many, many years ago at IMS and uh, I was the mouse catcher and we developed a better mouse trap where we uh, had a line of books up to a big trash can and we put peanut butter in the bottom of the trash can and the mice would smell the peanut butter and get to the top of the trash can and jump into the trash can and couldn't jump out. So then we would take them out uh, without having to, to kill them. And it took us some time to de- develop that. And But what I didn't realize is that I'd catch five or six mice in one trash can, and then I would take them outside, and I'd catch five or six night mice the next day and I would take them outside that the same mice were quite likely coming <laughs> back into the <laughs> so I spent my life catching the same five or six mice <laughs> but the but the alignment of heart was there and we were all very um, aware of the fact that 
we wanted to coexist with the mice, but we just didn't want them inside eating our food. And so it's just that heartfelt sense of life having an interconnected relationship to one another, and it needs that infusion of understanding so that we can all get along in this world. So uh, that's the, at the heart of what this precept, where this precept is pointing. And the second precept is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Now the beauty about this precept and is that any of these precepts, in fact, can take you to very deep levels of alignment in yourself with the world around you. Uh, because the Dharma, in its essence, is to receive life as it is. That, in some ways, that's the definition of what we're doing here. Learning how. Learning to relax, release, surrender, let go of our objections, our arguments to life. So when we are inviting this precept in, we're inviting a deep level of intention to do just that. That we're not going to uh, move uh, habitually with our neediness, with our desire, with our sense of lacking and take things which aren't being offered in the context of food and other uh, personal items or space or anything, but rather just to receive this situation as we are in this moment right now, just to relax with it. This is enough to learn that this is enough. We have enough now. We have enough. So that beautiful, see how it brings you in alignment? Just Just there's enough here for us. And then the third precept is one which also the context of the retreat keeps us very aligned with, and that is for the nature of this retreat, that we will be celibate together. <clears throat> Just because of how uh, sexual relationships create a whole sense of story and underlining drama that, on, in the context of our week here, could best easily just be released from. And involve ourselves in a simpler and uh, more direct uh, alignment with the moment as we, as we know it. And to stay quiet, to, to keep and allow each other's solitude as well as our own. We're not making some kind of prudish statement about sexuality. We're just bringing a simplicity into our week's work. And the fourth precept, as I mentioned, is to undertake the training to refrain from saying that which is not true or abusive speech. And again, because we are going to be together in silence, that will hold its own. And finally, the fifth precept is that I undertake the training to refrain from taking drugs or intoxicants which cloud the mind. And again, uh, we're not suggesting you don't take the medicines that you need to take that are prescription. We want you to take those. But if you brought a little substance with you that is for a joy ride, we just suggest you don't do it. Just, just put that aside. See what your mind is like in raw form, not when we cover it over with any sort of chemical-induced stimulation. Now, that's also true for moderation in caffeine, because caffeine, especially... Well, not especially because we in Seattle have our coffee, but you have your tea, and uh, <laughs> we, we, we just have to get along here with just a fewer glasses of tea and a fewer glasses of coffee, so we can just uh, keep that buzz to a minimum so that we can just 
carry ourselves through the day. And this is how we live as a community. This is how we live with each other. Joseph was talking about the absolute truth, now the relative truth of getting along with one another. You know, we can be so esoteric, so philosophical, so wondrous, so expansive in our awareness that we trip over each other's feet and don't even know that there's somebody at the door that is uh, a little in need of help. So let us keep our eyes open inwardly and also the context outwardly. And I really look forward to being with you here this week. Thank you. So how's the sound level? Can, can you hear back there? I don't trust this thing so far away. Okay. Great. So, <clears throat> as many of you know, the um, traditional way we like to begin a retreat is by taking the three refuges together, which I'll explain in a minute if you don't know them. How many people aren't familiar with the three refuges? Just so I know where to go. Okay. So the three refuges, it's uh, back from the time of the Buddha, it was the classic way that the Buddha would welcome someone into becoming, into practice, basically. Uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I'll just describe what we mean by them a little bit. But here, mm, we're not taking these as some kind of formal Buddhist thing at all. What this really is, is taking a moment to step out of the automatic pilot that Rodney mentioned, to take a moment and really look inside at what, where do we go in our heart, in our mind, for refuge, for safety, for protection, in times of stress, in times of fear, in times of loneliness. Where do we, not just intellectually, right, think, think it would be a good idea to trust, but what do we really trust Is it like patterns of anger? Is it uh, withdrawing out of fear? Is it heading for the fridge? Is it a cup of tea? Is it a movie? I'm not saying any of the things are bad, but what we really want to begin the retreat, so the whole retreat is really our whole life, is as Joseph said, the potential for freedom is here at every moment. Why don't we recognize it? Because we're taking refuge in the wrong thing. And so to begin our retreat by really looking at what's uh, uh, helpful, a supportive refuge, not that automatically, okay, I switch my refuge and now I recognize freedom every minute we wish. But we could at least start by honestly, for ourselves, looking at our heart, looking at our mind, looking at what we trust. What's our deepest motivation? What's our commitment? What brought you here? So I'll just describe what we call the three refuges and then just take a moment to look at that in ourselves. So in a way, refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, is just kind of three angles of looking at the same thing. The fact that the possibility of living with a heart and mind free from hatred, free from fear, free from greed, free from confusion, just for a moment. Don't, don't extend it into that possibility we should meet at every moment. Then it seems, you know, too far down the road. But this moment, right now, that's always possible. And so taking refuge in the Buddha, Buddha 
I mean, in, in classical Buddhist countries, people do take refuge in a sense of the historical Buddha as an inspiration, as a human being who recognized deeply the true nature of himself, his heart, his mind, and that true nature, we're freed because we quit trusting in the wrong thing and getting confused. So in classical Buddhist countries, refuge in Buddha does also mean for them taking refuge in the sense of the classical Buddha. But Buddha simply means awake, one who is awake. And so taking refuge in the Buddha can be seen, that's how I use it, and I do this every day, every time I come in here and kind of do that to the Buddha statue, I'm taking refuge, that's what I'm doing. Taking refuge in the Buddha is in our own possibility, our own potential for being awake right now. Not like some airy-fairy maybe someday, but really think that is my refuge. Not that I could get angry, not that I'm well, not that I'm This right now, whatever's happening, there's this potential for being awake, taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dharma, or Dhamma in Pali, Dharma Sanskrit, Dharma means a lot of things. Again, in the classical Buddhist countries, the Dharma means the actual teachings of the Buddha. And that can be a support if the teachings aren't taken as, as Joseph said, an intellectual view, a statement of facts that we then hold on to and get into arguments about with other people. That's not a refuge. You know, that's just making more trouble. But Dharma, if you think of the teachings as explanations of the living truth and then dharma also means reality the way things are the laws of nature the laws of mind and body in the world so for me when i take refuge in the dhamma it's really where is that potential of a free heart and mind available accessible only right now in this moment, in the truth, in the reality of how things are right now. And that's taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the absolute truth, in this moment. Not when I get rid of the pain in my rear. Not when I feel more expansive and open and loving. Not when that person next to me stops snorting. Now, just the way things are, total take refuge in that. We don't need to run away. We don't need to like it. But we can just take, this is how it is right now. Holy, taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the truth of things, not in how we wish things would be. And what can support us on this path, in this moment, is taking refuge in the Sangha. Sangha means community. Again, classically it meant the community of uh, ordained women and men. It can mean the community of awakened women and men. And in our way of practicing here together, we also mean it, use it to mean the community of all of us here together, of people with commitment, equal commitment to waking up. We support each other in that way. Now, as Ajahn Sumedho, I'm sure many of you are familiar with him, as he often says, taking refuge in the Sangha doesn't mean we're taking refuge in each other's personalities, (laughs) or even our own personality. Please. But it's as if we're taking refuge and we, we all take turns manifesting the awakened heart and mind. You know? And we take refuge in the Sangha as all the goodness, all the purity, all the moments of awakening that each of us manifests at different times. 
as a community, hopefully somewhere, one of us, every moment, (laughs) is having a moment of clarity, of peace, of love, of compassion, of non-clinging. So we take refuge in that as a community to support one another on this path. And you'll see over this week in silence, there's times when you just want to, and you know this if you've done retreats, it, most, for most of us it still happens that at some point, your first retreat or your 7,000th retreat, you think anything you know, to get out of here. You just want to run out screaming. And at that point, you see the person next to you just sitting there looking like a Buddha. Now, you don't know what's going on in their mind, but they look like it. You think, if they can do it, I can do it. At the end of the retreat, you usually find out that they were thinking that about you. So there's a way where all each other support, and there's a way we can really use one another for support. And that's taking refuge in the Sangha. So in a way, it's an inward journey. In a way, as Rodney said, we're not doing this in isolation. We're all here together. And that's something that we can really take refuge in. So when I talk about it in a moment, I'm just going to actually ask to, I'll say in English and ask you to repeat three refuges. But if you wouldn't mind, just take a moment now to just be quiet, take a breath, go into yourself and see really, connect with your, your intention, your motivation for tonight, for this retreat, for your life of awakening, whatever way, whatever limit in time. But to connect with that in a living way begins to move us from just running in our, our habit, our robotic habit, reminding ourselves of a different refuge than our habit patterns, than our fears and desires. And this refuge is always available. So I'll just say in English each of the three refuges once and ask you to repeat it. If you don't want to say it out loud, it's okay to say it internally. When I say it, I'm going to have my hands up like this just because that's how things are done in Buddhist countries and it's kind of deeply ingrained in me as a habit of respect, but there's no need for you to feel you need to take on that, okay? I'm doing it for me. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Okay, I have to do it three times because that's how it's always done. I thought I could stop after one, but I can't. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Great, thank you. So we consider we've kind of entered the 
sacred space of the retreat now. And we'll just have a short sitting together, really short, don't worry. Um, and just for a bit, I'll just give some very simple instructions. Tomorrow morning, Joseph will uh, be more specific about these ways of working with the breath. Tonight, just a very simple entry. So please sit in a way that you can be as comfortable as possible and also reasonably alert. Correct. But you don't have to like, you know, be in a killer posture. So you're sitting erect, but also internally just just allow your body to relax a bit. You don't need to be holding yourself stiff and firm. And let your mind relax. In other words, let it just soften into whatever's going on in the mind right now is fine. Whatever moods you're having are fine. Just relax into being here. Sitting. Just feeling the body as it sits. Just noticing and making room for being friends with whatever mood or thought train is rolling around in there. And just gently let yourself Receive whatever the sensations of sitting are. You don't have to go looking. You just kind of like you relax your mind into your body and just feel yourself sitting. See what presents itself. Is it the feelings in the shoulders? The way the head sits on the neck? Maybe the buttocks, knees, ankles, feet, your hands. Just let yourself relax. Notice your forehead, top of your head. If it feels tight, just kind of stretch it and let it relax. Let your eyes be closed softly. Just going to let the eyeballs sit lightly in the sockets. Let your jaw relax. Notice if your teeth and tongue kind of clenched. So you're really just feeling whatever sensations in the body present themselves, a sense of sitting here. And let your attention get a little wider. Be aware that you're sitting in the space of the room with other people. And then let your attention, your awareness... Just begin to notice any sounds that come and go by themselves. Just relax and receive sounds. Nothing you need to do or react to.
this quality of receptive awareness we can notice when we're just noticing hearing. And then again, noticing the feelings of the body sitting in that same same way of not trying to make something happen, just receiving the body and the attention and the mindful awareness. Maybe you feel the whole body, or maybe different specific sensations present themselves. Either is fine. And then within the field of all the physical experience, notice whatever sensations arise with the next in-breath, with the out-breath. You don't need to, at this point, focus on a particular area, but just noticing with this in-breath, with this out-breath. Just feeling what sensations come and go naturally with the natural breathing. Some people, I kind of feel the breath is in the whole body in a very kind of broad way, and that's fine. Maybe with this in-breath, you naturally feel sensations in the nose or in the chest or abdomen. That's also fine. Just being relaxed and simple and aware of the sensations with this in-breath and this out-breath. Of course, there's probably lots of thoughts or moods or sleepiness. It's fine. Notice it. Let it be there. Just kind of let it go in the background. And feeling again, just as this breath comes, feel the sensations. Not with the quality of forcing, but just interest. What does this in-breath feel like? What's happening when the breath goes out? Just this breath.
just knowing what's happening now. And feeling this next breath in the body. May our practice here together be a cause for the awakening of wisdom and compassion in all beings. Thank you all. 
for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.